All right, let's go ahead. Are you ready? Here we go. Here we go. All right, we got episode 68 here today. This is Tori and Harmon for Sports Psych MDs. One and only. The Sports Psych MDs. We did, we did this thing before. 68, number 68. I got I got Yamir Yager, number 68, Pittsburgh Penguins, won two Stanley Cups with Mario Lemieux back in the day. So shout out to Yamir Yager. That's right. 68. Shout out. Legend. Hey, let's go, man. I'm, I'm excited for this. But yeah. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's get it. I'm ready. All right. So today we're talking about neurodiversity. It's not really a medical term, but it's more of a kind of a colloquial term that people have been using nowadays to describe the uh, the spectrum or the range of brain function in the human race. And there's two camps. There's neurotypical and there's neurodivergence or neurodivergent. Um, once again, these aren't medical terms. We're kind of using them today to introduce this topic that there are people, and this would fall in the neurodivergence camp, whose brains process learn and people who behave a little bit differently than what's considered typical. Controversial topic hmm. somewhat, and we'll get into that. Definitely controversial. It, it almost sounds, I don't know, kind of sounds judgy a little bit. Typical, atypical, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's why they try to use neurodivergence instead of neuroatypical, but I've seen neuroatypical, but yeah. We'll get into that, but essentially today we're talking about. So, so divergent. When I think divergent, I, I, I think I, I think going away from mm -hmm. the norm, going away from the mean, and usually that's not a good thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we can consider it good or bad. What the medical community, the scientists have come to understand is that neurodivergence actually can have many benefits, and this kind of paradigm shift, not to look at these individuals who are neurodivergent as abnormal or less than, or, or, or even um, other than, but more as individuals who are neurodivergent, viewing them as having different methods of learning and processing information. So it's not bad, it's just different. And it's outside what is considered normal for some people, but we all know that humans, display characteristics and behaviors that some people would qualify as odd or unusual abnormal no unusual but you know here's where it becomes important so like you think about like the public school system and um you know i know certainly when i was growing up you know teachers kind of mostly just taught one way you know it was a, a very regimented curriculum and uh you know, if, if you were someone that kind of struggled with learning, you know, for example, if you were a person that had ADHD, you know, you struggle to maintain your attention on, you know, someone like, for example, a teacher who would be speaking to the class in a large group setting. Um, it may be hard to, to keep your focus on what, what that person is, is saying if it's a, a large group but a small group, right? It may make all the difference in the world. Yeah. And and I think that's why it's important is understanding understanding that, you know, different people learn differently. And and if you can make just small tweaks to the classroom setting, um, and technology, uh, and you know, all the different things we have with Zoom technology and you know, the ways we connect uh, nowadays, you know, I think it can be done. I think we just have to kind of, you know, be willing to innovate. Uh, change, you know, be flexible with, with, you know, how we're, we want to do things, how we want to approach 
our children, but I definitely think they're worth it. And I think the conversations around neurodiversity really open up some interesting conversations around how we can improve education. Yeah. And that's, I think that's going to be kind of the, the basis of this, this talk is, is trying to create a better understanding and allow for better empathy. And um, like you said, to create a better environment for individuals who may act and behave and learn differently than the, the average or the mean or what have you in a, in a scientific sense. But the concept of neurodiversity recognizes that both brain function and behavioral traits are simply indicators of how diverse the human population is. So it's like results of normal variations in the human genome. That's kind of what neurodiversity is centered around. But today we're going to spend a lot of time talking specifically about what Armin mentioned, ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and also autism spectrum disorder, which are probably the two most, two most common mental health medical diagnoses that fall under the umbrella of neurodivergence, which kind of seems controversial in a sense because we just talked about how neurodivergence is a normal variation, um, behavioral traits or, or functions that are still within the range of the normal human variation um, and don't necessarily lead to dysfunction or distress or, or anything that's going to cause difficulty within our society. But in fact, individuals who have ADHD or autism spectrum disorder have a rough go of it and can have distress or can have dysfunction in school. And we'll get into all that, how to recognize ADHD, how to recognize autism, how to treat ADHD, how to treat autism, and how we as a society, like Armin mentioned, can be a little bit better in, in tweaking the way ways we, we interact and um, communicate and understand and connect with others. So everyone, um, regardless of whatever brain function they have or, or differences they have can can still become the best individual they can become can still become people who can function um, well within our society because at the end of the day we live in a, a somewhat structured society we have to do certain things certain things are expected of us working a nine-to-five job sleeping at night being up in the morning eating showering so on and so forth using transportation we have to collaborate yeah you hit the nail right on the head man i mean you know, this is a, a really, really important topic, and it's going to continue to be an important topic uh, for years to come, because, you know, I really feel like understanding neurodivergence is really the gateway to uh, destigmatization of mental health, because neurodivergence is, is, is really not just about you know, mental illness at all or, or disease at all, it's, or, you know, or disorders or, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's just about the fact that every individual, and we talk about this all the time, every individual has a different mind, right? A different brain. And, you know, there's going to be variation among all of us, you know, the, the, the idea of a normal spectrum uh, in and of itself, or, you know, specific people who are, you know, divergent is, is kind of, uh, it's kind of silly. You know, I'd say everybody to some extent is divergent, right? Uh, everyone's neurodivergent to some extent. And I think that's what we have to appreciate is it's not a, it should not be considered, um, typical versus divergent, right? We're all divergent, uh, in some ways, right? And it's just, it, it should be something that's really embraced, right? We should be uh, embracing each other's differences, appreciating each other's differences, and 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 rather than seeing these things as you know 
you know, potential sources of deficit or disability, it may be the, that, that, that way for some, but for most, it's actually just, you know, something that makes you, makes you unique, makes you interesting, makes you special. And, you know, I, I, I would love to see a world where people are embraced for the things that make them unusual, but, you know, especially if it's a source of positivity for others. Yeah. And that, yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because that's kind of where we sometimes get in trouble as a society is we, we do kind of have an expected way of how we think individuals should should learn or behave. And we're very rigid in schooling and, and sports and, and other things with regards to trying to fit these individuals into boxes that they don't necessarily fit in. And uh, ideally with the, uh, uh, this discussion, we'll be able to kind of open up be able to allow individuals to have a better understanding so they're more open to realizing that no this this kid who has ADHD he doesn't need to fit in i need to adapt my teaching style in order to allow this individual to to learn just as as much as the individual next to them and that flexibility is what we what we want more of yeah. within society and that's what we need more of and so that's kind of one part of this talk, the other part is within this spectrum of, of neurodiversity, and I, I agree with you, Harmon, like we're all neurodiverse in our own ways. There are different points along that spectrum where it's going to be more difficult for individuals to function within our rigid society, and that could lead to a mental health issue down the road. And that's when we'll talk specifically about ADHD and autism spectrum disorder. Those don't become disorders unless there's some sort of distress or some sort of dysfunction within the society. And within those disorders, even an individual diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder or ADHD, those individuals can function just fine and, and not have any distress as well, despite carrying the disorder. And there's certain individuals who have severe ADHD or severe autism who are in, in a lot of distress and, and have a lot of dysfunction within society. So we don't wanna minimize how severe these illnesses can be, but at the same time, we don't want to. We we also want to make sure to shine a light on uh, the fact that these individuals can be just as successful, if not even more successful, than your quote unquote typical neurotypical individual. Mm -hmm. And not everyone needs help, but for those who do, there's uh, plenty of support out there. Um, you know, counselors, therapists, you know, doctors you know, nurses, you name it, there's a lot of people in the game that are capable uh, and qualified to, to treat neurodivergent conditions. And I would tell you, man, I, I can, I, you know, from a, uh, certainly a professional standpoint, but, you know, from a personal standpoint as well, you know, I've seen it time and time again that, you know, folks that commit to, to a treatment plan, you know, that, that really works for them that have these conditions who, you know, were failing or doing very poorly in school or, you know, just, you know, having trouble, um, in relationships or, you know, having trouble with, you know, just kind of like keeping their life together. I've just seen just total turnarounds is, you know, I, I've, I've seen things you know, either just completely get on track or man, you know, even people just kind of exceeding their goals. Um, with the right treatment. So excited to talk about all those things. Yeah. So today we're going to, we're going to talk about what to look for 
what are the characteristics of someone with ADHD or someone with autism? What are the treatments? Um, where to find the treatments? How to how to best change change our ways in order to help these individuals do the things they want to do, play sports, exceed in school, um, so on and so forth. So, and we'll talk about the athletes who have been open and honest about their diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as a kind of a friendly reminder, no one should, should take this as direct medical advice with anything we say. We're just having a conversation. So I hope you guys enjoyed episode eighty six. Let's go. Let's get it. Do, do you feel me? So neurodivergence in sports. Um, where do you want to start? We're going to start with ADHD. Let's start with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Hey, I mean that's that's the that's the sexy that's the sexy one, right? That's the one that people don't mind being identified as. You don't mind some, that label. Well, some do, some don't. Autism is completely different. You know that that doesn't feel the same. Well, we don't know. I, I I've met plenty of proud and proud individuals who have uh, been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. So it's a, it's an individual uh, case by case uh, situation there. It is, it is, it's, it's, it is a case by case, but I, I will tell you um, the funny thing with ADHD is that um, I, I can't think of another diagnosis where people come in kind of hoping they're going to get, <laughs> you know, diagnosed with it. I mean, most of the time people come to you, because they have suspicion, right? There's some, you know, they're, they're concerned well, about something and they're hoping that they yeah. won't get that diagnosis, right? ADHD sometimes it's like they're hoping they, they will um, for different yeah. reasons, uh, but we won't get into that. Well, that's the, that's the adult psychiatrist <laughs> in you. That's right. Well, yeah, I think we should get into that because that's the controversy behind this, ADHD. Right. And I, want, I don't want to spend too, time, too much time talking about it because at the end of the day, Children with ADHD, like children who are diagnosed and who have ADHD, that could be extremely disruptive um, and cause a, a lot of issues. And, and what Armin's speaking of is we do have, there's a lot of individuals in private practice and, and in any outpatient setting, and you're going to have adults come up to you and, and they're going to list off all the ADHD characteristics that they have. And they're going to be looking for that stimulant medication because um, unfortunately st stimulants are out there in the general population and then people tend to abuse them and, or use them when they're not indicated like Adderall or Ritalin. And everyone likes a little taste of dopamine. And it, within ADHD, someone who's, who takes a stimulant is treated with, with Adderall or or Ritalin, it is known to make them more calm and more focused, which results in them being able to get more done and be more functional within our society. Um, but individuals who don't have ADHD, um, who take Adderall or, or Ritalin and have that increased dopamine, they can come a lot more energetic and excitable and, and essentially they're like they're on speed. So a lot of people do like that feeling. Um, so we do get a lot of people who are seeking to have stimulants and there, there's a small camp of doctors and, and individuals who believe that any, every individual would benefit from a, a low dose of stimulant. We're, we're not going to get into that discussion today, but we do have to, as a psychiatrist, we kind of have to be able to be on the lookout for that and be able to, when we see an individual, be able to tell like, oh, is this individual truly have ADHD? And if so, we have no reservations about getting them the correct treatment. But part of our job is to really tease out what's ADHD and what's not. And what we'll get into today is there's a lot of different things, a lot of other issues that can impact focus, concentration, restlessness that has nothing to do with ADHD. 
but yeah, and part of the diagnosis, you have to have these symptoms before the age of 12. That's one of the main things. So I don't know, Armin, you want to talk a little bit about what ADHD looks like? Well, ADHD actually can look a lot of different ways. Um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to reintroduce a term that we've used often before, the term spectrum, to the conversation because it, it applies very much to diagnosing ADHD because on one hand, you know, the, the spectrum thing is actually a multidimensional thing. Okay. Because on one hand, you have a spectrum as it relates to severity, right? So, you know, some folks uh, who have this condition, the ways in which they experience the condition are, are so, uh, so challenging for them. Um, they create so many sort of difficulties as it relates to their, um, their executive function that they're unable to perform you know, even, you know, what most would consider kind of like, you know, simple tasks. And, uh, and so, you know, folks like that, they, they, they typically are, you know, they're going to need a lot of attention, a lot of, a lot of support, a lot of help, you know, they definitely, you know, need a medical treatment, uh, probably behavior management as well. So they'll likely have therapist and, and medical provider, you know, psychiatrist. And in some cases, in many cases, uh, they may have to have uh, classes uh, in which they, they can kind of have more personalized attention. That's kind of the severe spectrum. But then, you know, there are folks that have uh, symptoms that really enable them to, to perform, you know, pretty much on the level of, you know, I, you know their, their peers, particularly when they have that, that support, right, that, that therapy or that medical treatment, usually medical treatment kind of the, the treatment of choice for those that, that do present with symptoms that um, are, are causing performance deficits in the classroom uh, as children. But again, uh, it, it's something that when intervention happens early, you give the child the opportunity to, to learn what they need to learn in the earlier stages of school so they don't fall behind. And if, if you can enable them to be treated early enough so that they don't fall behind uh, and they can stay on par academically with their peers. I think, you know, these children typically have a chance to do really, really well, uh, you know, later in life and they, they won't, they won't be set back academically. So not only academically, but it's also extremely important that individuals with ADHD have the appropriate interventions early on because so a kid with ADHD, especially the hyperactive or combined type, which we'll get into, there's inattentive type and there's hyperactive type, and then there's the combined type. Um, they have difficulty with developing social relationships, difficulty with peers. A lot of peers don't necessarily want to be around an individual who they're talking to and they zone out and they're not paying attention when they're talking to them, or they're having a, they're playing with friends and this kid always butts in or blurts in and, and, and just kind of, is talking nonstop and then runs away and then comes back and, and is just not generally fitting in with the peers. It, yeah. They seem weird, right? Yeah. They get ostracized. So they don't develop socially as well because kids at that age, six, seven, they don't necessarily want to be around that individual. They may find them annoying or they may find them weird or, or they're like quiet and, and, and don't fit in. So, 
that's, I think, almost the more important point when it comes to early intervention is to help these individuals uh, find peers and social social groups that can be supportive because mm-hmm. we know with a child's development, the, the, the peer group and the friends they hang out with are just as important as uh, their grades or, or how their parents treat them. Indeed, indeed. You know, and, and so uh, as far as spectrum goes, like we mentioned, there's going to be a pretty wide variation um, in terms of level of severity. And, and then let's go into the symptoms. So there's a wide range of symptoms, right? So the, the spectrum thing works two different ways. And uh, six or more symptoms are required for either the diagnosis of inattentive ADHD or the diagnosis of uh, the hyperactive slash impulsive ADHD type. And of course, there's also, uh, just to confuse you even more, uh, what we call a combined presentation or children that essentially have symptoms of both hyperactivity and impulsivity. What we see usually is one or the other, right? And in boys, you're usually seeing the hyperactive type in girls, you're usually seeing the uh, more the inner inattentive type. But at the end of the day, if you see six or more of the following, you would diagnose inattentive ADHD, provided that these symptoms are causing dysfunction for this child disturbances at school and at home. All right. And that's do I don't know if we got to we did we don't need to necessarily go through the DSM though I think that might be a little heavy I, I was just gonna look, listen some does your child forget things that that should be routine daily activities do, do they do they forget to do the, do they forget to do those things um, do they get easily distracted do you find that they often lose things that are important things they, that they use often like their their pencils their their books. Older for older kids, their wallets, their keys, their their eyeglasses, things of that nature, their cell phones. Do uh, do you find that your kids avoid or dislike or are reluctant to do things that require sustained effort? Um, do they have difficulty with organizing themselves to do tasks and activities you ask them to do, like chores, right? Do they uh, have difficulty with following instructions? Yeah, I'd say every kid. When it comes to let's say finishing or completing school assignments or homework assignments are they able to, to kind of look at you and, and kind of focus on what you're saying when when they're being spoken to directly by name uh are these things that again you notice both at home and at school these are examples these are different symptoms of a child that has the inattentive adhd type and this one is actually probably the most controversial uh, of them all, because um, I think going back to this whole colloquial thing that you mentioned earlier, I think, you know, for, like the sort of colloquial perspectives on ADHD, certainly when I was growing up, this was the case, is that it was a, a kid, um, the caricature was always a kid, you know, five, six, seven years old, running around the classroom, can't sit still, right, talkative, fidgety, right? And, and we've come to realize that that was absolutely um, not a complete perspective of this condition. Yeah. And in fact, there are many children who have 
uh, who had ADHD, who actually were more of the shy type um, that were sitting there um, really seemingly attentive, right? Because they weren't making noise, they weren't disturbing the classroom, uh, but they were kind of spaced out, uh, little did we know. And in fact, this, this is the, uh, the variant that affects girls more so than boys. So what about hyperactivity? Why don't you tell us about that one? So, so this is all based off, kind of you touched on something important, like hyperactivity is the most pertinent in preschool age and kind of what you mentioned, because that's what's going to show up more often as the, the hyperactive, restless, fidgety individual. It's going to be easier for a teacher or a parent to notice that um, versus someone who's the inattentive type. But hyperactivity is the most prominent in preschool. And then combined type is the most commonly um, diagnosed. Um, combined hyperactivity and inattentive. And most individuals will de develop into the combined type at some point. And then later in life, usually the hyperactivity fades and it's the inattentive type that you'll see that that will remain in, into adulthood. So um, yeah, I think that people say, oh, I, d I don't have ADHD. I have ADD because I'm not hyperactive. Well, they're now combined to the same thing. So even if you're not the hyperactive type, you still have ADHD. You just have the inattentive type. But the combined type is the most commonly diagnosed, and that's usually just because of what Armin said that that the it's more easy to pick out someone who is um, restless and, and fidgety and hyperactive versus someone who's just inattentive. Um, but yeah, same thing for the hyperactivity type. There's there, you have to have six or more symptoms and I won't go through all of them. We just talked about them a little bit, but the biggest thing is that they have to be present, not only in like an academic setting, uh, but also at home. So, or, um, during a sport. So they have to be present to different settings because if someone's just showing these behaviors at school, um, but they're completely fine and they pay attention at home and, they're able to do their homework at home and they're able to watch a full movie at home and uh, they're able to have conversations with their parents. Then that would mean maybe there's something else going on at school. Maybe there's a learning disorder. Um, so it's important that you kind of see this uh, active in, in two separate domains. And these symptoms have to be present before the age of 12 to get the diagnosis. And they can't be better explained by another mental illness or condition. And that's kind of what we get in the weeds about is, is trying to determine all right, is there something else going on that maybe looks like ADHD? Is there anxiety? Is there depression? Is there some sort of defiant behavior? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Which there which often is, you know, it, it's, it's so common to see that. Uh, that's what makes it so difficult because uh, those conditions can very much mimic the symptoms of ADHD. It's one of our challenges. Yeah. And that's one of the things we're circling back to the, the, the adults that come in. We, I think Armin and I both see this a lot. It's individuals who come in and think they have ADD. They've kind of read up on ADHD, excuse me. They think they have ADHD. They've read up on ADHD and it fits for them. Um, but then after doing a full interview, talking with them, getting a history, you find out oh, there's, there's a lot of anxiety here. There's maybe a generalized anxiety disorder. And it's the anxiety. It's that worry about the future. Um, it's, it's that, that worry about doing a college kid that's worried about this test. So they procrastinate, they put it off because it takes too much mental energy to face that, that anxiety head on. So they procrastinate and they don't do well in their tests. And it's, it's really that anxiety that's disrupting the attention, the focus, the concentration, and maybe also causing some restlessness or hyperactivity. So anytime this occurs, we want to always treat that anxiety first. Or if it's depression that that causes you to just not be motivated and not be able to sustain attention because you're just like pull whatever, we want to yeah. treat that depression first because then ultimately that attention, concentration, and focus can 
can improve along with everything else. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, that, that sort of age window up to, to 12 years old, you know, having those symptoms and, you know, and, and having those symptoms, you know, be clearly affecting this person prior to age 12, I think is really important because, you know, 12 years old is, is, uh, it's, it's a time in our lives, you know, when we start going through a lot of different changes, right? You know, a lot of people use the term puberty and there's just a lot of stuff that's happening around that time with, you know, our hormones cycling that actually really does, uh, influence our, our behavior. Right. And it, and it should come as no surprise that we also go through a major sort of cognitive shift. Um, you know, as far as our brain development at that time, we start thinking more abstractly. Um, you know, we start seeing ourselves as kind of like these individuals, right. Separate from this sort of group, you know, that, that we kind of recognize hard to recognize ourselves as part of when, you know, we're six, seven years old. And, uh, and that could be a tough time for, for kids. Um, that can actually be a time when, you know, stuff like social anxiety disorder, uh, becomes quite prevalent and social anxiety disorder for, for some can also be kind of a reservoir, uh, or a gateway to depression. Right. And what we know about depression and anxiety in kids and teens is that it's not necessarily going to show up the same way that it does in adults. It's also going to, you know, could be, could be missed in kids and teens because, you know, kids don't necessarily know how to, to communicate or understand and interpret their feelings the way that, that we, that we can as adults. So, you know, if you're talking about someone who is experiencing, you know, kind of like inattentiveness in the classroom or, you know, they're not really socializing effectively with their, their, their friends, but they're, they're 13, 14 years old and they, they never really had these symptoms before, it may not necessarily be ADHD. Um, sure, they're young, but we definitely see uh, major anxiety disorders and even major depressive disorders creep in, especially nowadays, you know, with social media and all this craziness going on in the internet and Facebook and meta, whatever the hell, whatever the hell it is today. Yeah. I mean, we we're seeing a lot of this stuff um, occurring earlier you know, in, in life. And, um, and it's important to know oh, yeah. that it's depression or anxiety, uh, as opposed to ADHD, because the treatment pathways are just completely different. Yeah. And it could be, it could be something neither, not depression or, or anxiety. I think, uh, there's, there's a study out on this with regards to uh, social media use or electronic device use. They, uh, interviewed or had a group of individuals freshman year, and a certain number of individuals who would who would use um, social media for greater than a certain number of hours, um, versus a group of individuals who use social media less than a, a, a number of hours, and they followed them through the four years. And the individuals who used more social media accounts ended up displaying or developing. Neither of them had ADHD-like symptoms initially their freshman year, but then developed ADHD symptoms within those four years after using more social media. So there's something to say about the kind of the media and how we consume it, how it's kind of hit like TikToks, 30 second videos, little clips and blam, blam, and on to the next one. Like I can watch 50 TikTok videos in, a, in an hour and it's different content, different things thrown at my way. And that can kind of 
while it's appealing to us, that can kind of create this need for external stimulation and put us on this kind of condition our brains to all sit back and always feel like we need some sort of external stimulation in order to focus. We can't just sit there passively and, and kind of take in the world around us, but we need something coming at us externally to attend to. And that sometimes can mimic kind of ADHD in a way, um, but it's not ADHD. So it's, it's important to kind of keep these things in mind. And that's another one of the reasons why Armin and I wanted to do more of a long form type podcast to really uh, get this information out there in an hour, an hour and a half, instead of doing like a, a TikTok version of this. Well, we may have a TikTok version in the future. For sure. But that's important to know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's coming. You know it's but, coming. But th- th- I think the controversy co- comes in, is, and a lot of you may have listened to this about how, like, isn't this just kind of, for a lot of kids, normal uh, developmental behavior? And for a lot of children, it, it is. We're not going to call it as abnormal. We're, we're just saying it to a certain extent. If the kid can't fit in with the classroom setting, can't get along with his peers, can't maybe can't play a sport because, because he can't get along with his peers or pay attention to the rules or the instructions, that's going to be disruptive. And that's going to lead to, to a lot of consequences. And there's, there's studies behind this. And I'm going to put all these studies up on our website that, that we referenced today to, to help you guys if you want to check it out on the website after this. Um, th- it, this isn't trivial because individuals who have ADHD are more prone to accidents in the future. They're more prone to motor vehicle accidents, tra- getting traffic tickets, uh, early mm-hmm. pregnancy, uh, increased drug use, and just overall increased risk-taking behavior. This is borne out in, in these studies. So it's, it's not only important to help these kids function in school, which school in another way, you have to sit still in a classroom for eight hours a day. It's for some kids, it's just not natural. And I agree with that. And eventually after school, they can go on and, and find a job that more is more active and fits their personality. And that's great. But it's just a factor of like, you, you got to be able to attend in school and, and make friends. And if we diagnose someone with ADHD, and we treat them, and I'm not necessarily saying we have to give them a stimulant, but if we treat them and give them the support they need to get through school, and then eventually they can go on and choose a career path that better fits how their brain works. I think that's great. Um, ideally, we can change the school system and adapt and tailor this, how we treat each individual kid to match how they best learn. Mm-hmm. That would be ideal, mm-hmm. but that's just not realistic at this point. Well, how, yeah, and how, do, how does this, this type of condition affect performance like on the field or on the, the court, right? Yeah. You know, because th- you know, that's obviously something that we have to address as well. It's not just the classroom. Right. I mean, you said social. You mentioned that you know your your social functioning could could be could be affected by ADHD or is often affected by ADHD. And you have to have high social functioning to be an elite athlete. We talk about communication mm-hmm. as one of the primary pillars of mental fitness. You got to be able to follow instruction. Mm-hmm. How do we get through that? How do we help the athlete? Yeah. So I think let's let's talk a little bit about like the treatments. I think we talked a little bit why it's important to kind of recognize this as an actual disorder, but once we recognize it, how do we help these individuals? If we can't have an elementary or middle school or high school teacher, they're just, there's too much pressure on them to tell them, Oh, you have to make sure Timmy's got ADHD. You have to make sure to tailor your, uh, your lecturing to him the best way he knows how and also do it for your 29 other students. That's not realistic. So how can we 
how can we help these individuals? Um, so like Armin mentioned before, there's different types of kind of behavioral therapies that you can do. Um, a lot of it has to do with taking the burden off the parent, the parents or helping the parents facilitating, um, and educating the parents because the parents at the end of the day, for a kid who has hyperactivity, it can be really frustrating because a lot of times it's, you can't catch a break. So a lot of this is, uh, you can do parent management training or PMT, um, essentially, it, it just has to do with what we've talked about before, positive reinforcement, because individuals with ADHD, they, they're at risk of developing like defiant behaviors, and they're at risk of having kind of caustic interactions with individuals because those hyperactive behaviors can be annoying for some. So essentially, this therapy, parent, parent, man, I'm going to splice this up, parent management training kids learn that they can get what they want oftentimes by behaving badly. The reason a kid throws a temper tantrum is because they want something. And in the past, throwing a temper tantrum gets their parents so frustrated, they give up and give them what they want. Mm -hmm. So this often happens with limit setting. Like when, oh, it's all right, Timmy, it's time to turn the TV off and go to bed or it's time to do your homework. So when that happens, Timmy throws a temper tantrum and eventually the parent gives up and is like, all right, you got 15 more minutes. So the goal is to kind of break this, this kind of cycle of you try to set a limit, the kid yells and screams, the kid gets an extra 15 minutes because they just don't want to hear the kid yell and scream anymore. So you need to break this cycle. The main thing for parents is to be consistent, set limits and create structure and be positive. Show the child what you want from them and give them incentives or rewards or positively reinforce these, these positive behaviors. So if Timmy shuts the TV off and starts his homework on his own, you're going to give them a lot of praise. All right, way to go, Timmy. Great job. This is great. Um, and maybe they get a reward for that and you build up rewards. And at the end of the week, they can use those rewards to, to earn 10 more minutes of TV time or screen time. And then the second part is learning strategies to correct negative or defiant behaviors. And this is the hardest one. You have to sometimes ignore the little bad behaviors because sometimes when you don't ignore it and you give a reaction, that's what the kid wants. Oftentimes it's just a reaction. Mm -hmm. And then for more severe behaviors, you have to enforce consistent consequences and like, like a timeout. That's important. Consistency is key. That's right. So, and it has to be consistent and you almost have to, you have to treat your child as like a, like a mini adult. You have to have a conversation with them. You have to tell them the reason what you want from them, the reason you want that from them and what they're going to get out of it. Yep. It's like a mini negotiation. Yeah. And, and in, you mentioned this is, these are all therapy forms of treatment. Uh, and there's also, of course, medical treatments. Many people are familiar with stimulants, um, you know, the Ritalin treatments, the Adderall treatments. I think many people have heard of these. But what many people have not heard of is that there are also non-stimulant forms of treatment. Um, you know, so there, there are treatments out there that are very effective for ADHD that are not habit-forming. Um, that, that don't run the risk of causing appetite suppression, you know, like some of the, the, uh, the stimulants will often cause. And, you know, they, they don't, uh, you know, have a deleterious effect on sleep. In fact, in some instances, they, they, can, they can actually help facilitate sleep. So the reason why that's important to know is that we really do, uh, you know, try to, to tailor and customize treatments um, to make sure it's the right thing for that individual. 
And if we don't feel like we can come up with the right thing, then, you know, we're, we're, we're going to recommend against treatment, right? We're going to say, Hey, maybe therapy is just the way to go. And, uh, and that this, this child would not benefit from medical treatment, right? That that's the other reason why you, you go to a psychiatrist is to, to be able to get a clear perspective on really, you know, what the risks and benefits are of medical treatment. And if this child's condition, um, merits that level of treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I'm pretty bullish about prescribing stimulants if, if I believe someone has ADHD because they work and, and there's a study, um, the multimodal treatment study for children with ADHD, UCLA was a part of this, our school. So this was, uh, a national Institute of mental health and collab and six collaborating academic sites, including UCLA did a, a 14 month study with almost 600 participants. Each participant was diagnosed with ADHD combined type. This is going to be up on the website. The ages were between seven and nine and it's, a, and they were, they came from different social economic backgrounds all throughout the U S because of the diff six different academic sites. So, um, but mostly boys overall, because in general, boys are going to be more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. And they looked at the, the efficacy and the differences and the, the outcomes between uh, medication management only, so stimulants versus um, behavioral therapy versus combination behavioral therapy and stimulants versus community, which was essentially like the placebo. It's like, all right, you go out in the community, you find your pediatrician or even a psychiatrist out in the community to, to treat you however they see fit. And what comes out over the 14 months is that the stimulant group, the group that just received methylphenidate or Ritalin or, or Adderall, they did the best. They did the best uh, along with the individuals who did the combined treatment, stimulant plus therapy. There was no real differences between mm -hmm. stimulants only and stimulant plus therapy. The only difference was that the combination showed that better um, improvement in individuals that had oppositional or aggressive symptoms. Uh, it helped with parent-child relations, internalizing symptoms like anxiety, and then um, uh, academics. So, and they did this by um, obviously clinical interview, uh, rating scales, and uh, getting information from teachers and parents. That's how they kind of developed uh, the starting points and endpoints. So, in action, and so, so that's why I'm bullish on prescribing stimulants because they work. They work so well. And all four legs or all four arms of the study, they, they work. So the, the behavioral therapy worked as well. It just wasn't, didn't work as good as stimulants right. combined. And then the community care also worked as well. Um, but it just wasn't as strong as, as the stimulant and the, and the combined stimulant and behavior therapy. So stimulants work. And Armin mentioned appetite suppression, sometimes difficulty with sleep. Those are really the, the two side effects sometimes we're battling. But at the end of the day, there's so many different options, so many ways to, to dose the medication that we, we can really avoid doing that. And then if we have to, if those, those side effects are, are getting in the way too much, we can go to to non-stimulants and different alternatives. That's right, man. Um, and there's some great there's some great alternatives. Yeah, stimulants have the biggest effect size. So that we're, we're we're talking about probably the the best medication we have to offer when it comes to psychiatry. Yeah, the, and for those that understand uh, the the value of effect size uh, in in terms of research validation, then you understand that um, yeah, the the effect size for stimulant therapy uh, is proof positive. 
you know, for, for why we should be using it and, and why, you know, all children that are performing poorly in school uh, who have ADHD should be, should be taking stimulants who, who, can, who, who can tolerate them. Yeah. So let me just point out that the, the behavioral therapy that they used in the study, it was pretty intense. So they did parent training. So they helped educate the parents. Essentially what we talked about earlier, they teach them how to better interact and reinforce positive behaviors in their ADHD kid. They did school intervention. So they worked with specifically with teachers on how to do these same things. And then they did child interventions um, where they worked on peer relationships, academic function, functioning, wow. uh, building confidence for these individuals. So this was kind of an all-encompassing behavioral therapy. Yeah, so that's a holistic program. Yeah. All-encompassing holistic program. Pretty much, go. pretty much anything. This reminds me of our program. This is our, this is our, this is our program. You know, it's, 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 it's holistic. Uh, it's all-encompassing. You know, it, it, it hits all the milestones. And uh, yeah, we, we promote this, man. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that's going to make a difference for so sure. So just think about st uh, stimulants alone did better than all that therapy combined. But if you throw that therapy and combine it with stimulants, then you have not only improvements in the ADHD symptoms, but you have improvements in everything else we talked about before. The social so, skills. Uh, we're you proponents know. of both those interventions. Yeah, uh, but, and, and I think it's the social mm -hmm. skills part of it that could be be really great for for athletes right and, and you know young athletes that um you know may have some difficulties because of you know their neurodiversity and uh obviously cognitive the cognitive part we talk about it all the time the mental fitness the cognitive aspect the the sort of iq uh aspect of uh competition of performance is just as important right as the physical training the, the talent i mean it's, it's a part of the talent i mean you know lebron james you know we could say he's kind of made a career off of and you know, having you know the greatest basketball iq the nba's ever seen so debatable treatment of adhd uh particularly the the behavior therapy part of it i think can just be so tremendous because what it's going to do is it's going to help with that that communication piece, right, and help with, you know, the ability to, I think, mindfully focus, right, on on kind of what what the coach is saying, um, you know, where you have to be on the field, on the court, paying attention to what your teammates are doing, and you know, also as someone that has ADHD and you know struggled as a as a kid with uh, with performance. I absolutely can tell you that, you know, addressing these things early and uh, getting ahead of them can make a huge difference. It really can. So, um, you know, we should actually go in and start talking about some of these real true professional athletes who have ADHD that have been consistently great despite of the, despite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before we do, so I wanted to give, before we jump into the athletes, I wanted to talk about like specifically what can a coach do or a teammate do with someone for a kid who has ADHD oh, absolutely. that's playing a sport. I think, definitely. I know what we talked about before, it's like more, whether it's the head coach or assistant coach, more, more frequent check-ins with this individual to help them kind of remind them of their task, remind them of what they need to be doing in practice or, or during the game, more frequent check-ins with regards to that, maybe more frequent praise or, or some sort of reward when they're, when they're doing well in practice or staying on task during a game. It's that kind of behavioral reinforcement, kinder, gentler ways of, of, of 
of calling an individual out if they're, they're talking excessively or, or joking around, um, having maybe a little bit more lenience and, and directing them back into appropriate behavior. Yeah, that's so important. Yeah, man. so just I think the, the frequent check-ins and, and reminders of just knowing that they have a harder time following instructions and they're not necessarily kind of just being a smart ass or, or a troublemaker, but they legitimately need reminders and need consistency. I think having that understanding and putting that into practice can be so beneficial. And then obviously the teammates are going to kind of lead by example of what the, the coaches, coaching staff are doing. And yeah, sometimes they may think you're playing favorites and that may lead to needing to have a, a discussion with the team and some sort of openness about what's going on. And uh, everyone has to do it differently based off their team. But at the end of the day, I think it's something where if, if it, people can be more open about it, um, and that's the first step of, of being, people being able to understand each other better and then they're able to work better Indeed, as a team. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm actually really glad we took this detour because that reminds me of um, experience I had playing high school football. Um, you know, and, and back when I was playing football, like, you know, it's, it's like we talked about at the time, you just didn't talk about, you know, your mental health challenges. Like that was just never uh, something that, that was – really going to be addressed. So I, I, I did struggle with, with, you know, again, you know, keeping track of things and, you know, you know, staying, you know, sort of focused on the play and focused on where I needed to be and, you know, things of that nature. Um, but I, I never did share that, uh, with, you know, my, my coach coaches, um, or my teammates. And I just remember a couple of times that I made a mistake on a play and it was really just kind of one of these things, you know, just not paying attention to kind of getting, you know, a little spacey, right? Uh, and and missing the instruction from the coach, and kind of going out there and you know making a bad play, and really you know just I, I remember a couple of times, really getting my ass chewed out right by the coach and kind of humiliated, um, and in such a way that you know it, it really made me afraid to talk to uh, the coach about you know, my, my struggles or, you know, things I might, um, you know, be, be having, be having a problem with, because I, I just, I felt like if, if I were to be vulnerable, that I would get exposed like that, you know, I would be humiliated, you know, and, and shame and humiliation is one of the, you know, that's one of the worst things when it comes to like people feeling comfortable and people having anxiety. I mean, that's one of the bigger triggers out there. Right. So, um, I, I do wish looking back that things had been different, that there was just more empathy. Um, you know, and empathy is kind of a tough word when it comes to like, you know, the high level competitive environment, you're supposed to be tough. I mean, I was military guy, you know, basic training. I mean, it's almost like empathy is not even, you know, in the same conversation, but I think it should be, I think there's a level, there's a limit to everything. Then there's a level of understanding that has to be there in awareness um, you know, that, that, Hey, I would rather have a, a player who feels comfortable to come to me as a coach and have a conversation, um, you know, than someone that suffers in silence. It's gotta be a team and a family. And those are, those are difficult conversations to have as a coach. It is. Yeah. And that, that's, that, that's devastating. Cause that's the, like you mentioned with your coach, that's the exact opposite kind of 
response you, you would want to see out of, out of a coach in that situation. And, and, but that's far too common in, in sports and, and youth sports as well. It's, it's, it's kind of leading by fear and, and shame and, and not in like skipping the parts of connecting and, and trying to understand the individual, because ultimately you want to, you want to figure out what led to the, the mistake. If you want to call it mistake, if you forgot to play, what led to that? Like, why did this, my, my player forget this play? Is it because he wasn't paying attention because he's worried about something else or is it because he has ADHD or is it because he's not interested in the game and, and really trying to figure out which one that is. And then going from there, you could better help that individual. You can maybe, if it's a, someone who d- doesn't want to be there and doesn't like sports and they're just playing because their dad wants them to play, then, then yeah, maybe that, that person's not right for, for football. But if it's an individual who has ADHD and has attention issues and yeah, they, they didn't, when you called the play in the huddle, you were thinking about the butterfly that just flew on the field because that's your, your, how your brain works. You're kind of jumping all over the place. Then you take that player to side and you figure out ways to maybe they need one of those um, wrist guards that shows the plays or they need the, the let the quarterback know, hey, make sure you tell Armin, your, your number one receiver here, maybe just confirm with them that he heard what the play was. That's right. And like these different small little things you can do that aren't going to really take a whole lot of energy that's going to make little things make that individual but better athlete and feel better about themselves, be more open, and it's going to be helpful for the team overall. Yeah, man, minor modifications, you know, to the classroom environment, um, you know, to the film room environment, uh, however you want to look at it, whether you're on the field, in the practice room, in the classroom, doesn't really matter. Like, it's just about understanding that, you know, we, we all have a different way of, of learning, different way of understanding, different way of kind of communicating. And, mm-hmm. and it's not that... Uh, you know, we all have to have different classrooms. We can all function as one, right? And and work together as one in one team. But I think that we do have to be more understanding, right? We have to each each yeah. of the individuals, coaches, teachers, players, students, we just have to all be willing to be more flexible. Um, and all just, you know, generally more aware of the fact that we all are a little bit different and it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yep. Absolutely. And let's not forget individuals, ADHD have their own strengths. They, they're a lot of them are known for their out of, out of the box thinking. Um, they can be great problem solvers. They can be very energetic and, and fun to be around sometimes because of that energy and because of kind of that happy go lucky attitude oftentimes. And some people wonder, and this is kind of theoretical. It's like, okay, if ADHD is something that's causes dysfunction and being able to like be an active member in society, why does it still exist through evolution? And some people postulate that individuals that have ADHD do have this ability to kind of almost hyper-focus where they focus on one thing, one thing only, and they're completely in the zone, disregarding everything else around them. And some people say that that was something that kind of was beneficial for individuals in the past. And that's why it kind of hung on. And that's why it's so prevalent today. So part of this is being able to re- to take each individual into account and finding out what their strengths are. And if they're really good at kind of problem solving and out of the box thinking, um, utilizing that, and whether that's in a team sport or in the, in the classroom. Don't forget that, that these individuals have strengths too. Speaking of what we can do in the classroom, there's things nowadays that 
there's IEPs, individual education plans, there's 504 plans, different things. If, if you have a kid who has ADHD has been diagnosed, they can, and they're having, they're struggling in school, which Armin, you weren't struggling in school because you high functioning. And that's one of the reasons why you weren't diagnosed that's right. as a kid. That's right. Yeah. So if, if, if someone is struggling in school, it's up to the school to develop treatment plans, education plans to help adapt them, adapt them best to the child. So out here in California, we have IEPs and 504 plans where a kid can get time and a half on a test. They can be able to take tests in a quiet room, separated from their classmates. Um, they can get time and a half on homework assignments. They, they, if it's extremely severe, they can have a one-to-one -one aid that sits with them and redirects them and keeps them doing their homework. Um, if, if it's even more extreme, they'll get separated out into a, to a special education classroom, smaller class size, more uh, teachers that are specifically trained to, to interact with those types of individuals. So there's things that we have in place now in our schools mm -hmm. that can be helpful. But once again, yeah. this is for individuals yeah. who are failing classes. The, the, the gray well, areas, they, the individuals have even, ADHD and are still getting by. Well, exactly. And, and so in my case, they actually had the, uh, that gifted and talented program. Um, and they, you know, kids that have ADHD often do well in those groups because they're, they're the smaller class sizes, right? So in public school, they'll take out the group of kids that are, you know, more higher performing or that would do better with, you know, smaller groups, right? So it might be groups of three or four. And that's what helped me because I, I couldn't do it in the, uh, the, the, the larger classes, I was going to be talking out. I was, you're right. My, my grades were okay, but I was actually getting marks for needs to exercise self-control. That was always the, 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 the mark that I got down <laughs> for, um, on my elementary school report cards. But I, it's like, you know, that's what happens is you just sort of lose, lose track and, um, you're not really doing it intentionally, but you know, you, you run your mouth and you know, you're, kind of up and about and disruptive, but you know, it, it really is amazing how things changed, you know, when they made those modifications to my classroom experience, you know, so here we are now, right? I made it this far, so, um, but hey, you know. And I, think, I think it's important to say in general that individuals with ADHD actually do quite well in sports oftentimes because it's that physicality that is helpful. A lot of these individuals learn better when they're up and moving their bodies because they're naturally at rest, a hyper, like a kid with combined type or hyperactivity, they want to get up and move around. So playing a sport like football, basketball, soccer, you're up and moving around and, and it's easier for some of these individuals to learn that way. So a lot of kids with, with ADHD can excel in sports. And, and we'll, let's talk about a few. We've talked about these guys before. Some of the greatest athletes of all time have been open and honest about their struggles with ADHD. That's right. Like the one and only Michael Phelps, to name a few. Isn't that amazing? Uh, a guy like that, um, probably the greatest Olympian. Yeah. He said, growing up, I was someone who constantly bouncing off walls. I could never sit still. And he said, I think the biggest thing for me, once I found out that it was okay to talk to someone and seek help, I think that's something that has changed my life forever. And he's saying he's now able to live his life to the fullest. This is someone who not only struggled with ADHD, but has struggled with depression as well. Mm -hmm. Um, which we talked about before, individuals with ADHD are at risk for developing anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, because of that kind of, because a lot of times they, they feel like they're different than other people. They don't fit in. They don't develop those connections as strongly. 
Yeah. Um, so it can put them at risk. It, um, and someone like absolutely Michael Phelps, who excelled at the highest of his profession, still struggled with ADHD and depression. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's one of the most important things for kids is, is to feel like they belong, you know, they fit it, that they fit in. And, and it's interesting, like when you think about that age, when, when ADHD really starts to set in, you know, five to seven, um, that's the age when being a part of a peer group is probably like the, 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 the strongest or the desire to be part of a peer group is strongest for kids, right? Is, is when they're, when they're young and they're, they're adolescents. It's really, I think, more when you get into your teenage years that you start being comfortable with independence. Um, but when you're in your peak ADHD years, you also to be kind of the most awkward, right? And the most likely to be ostracized, um, you know, by your peers. And you hold on to that. You know, a lot of these kids can, can hold on to that and that can continue to affect them emotionally mm-hmm. when, they, when they reach, you know, their, their teenage years. Yeah, and that's why it was good for like, uh, Michael Phelps and people like Simone Biles to find a sport they, that they could excel at and develop, not only develop within that sport, but develop as a, as a adult, as a mature individual, partially through the, probably the lessons they learned in that sport. Um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that they still have ADHD. Simone Biles, um, her records got leaked um, that found out she was taking um, methylphenidate or Ritalin, which she came and then she had to be open about how she's been diagnosed with ADHD and she's not ashamed of, of having to take medication to, to treat her, her mental illness. Um, so more power to her. And she's not the only one like J- Justin Gatlin, the former gold medalist in the 100 meters um, in the 2004 Olympic games. He's open and honest about his diagnosis of ADHD. And he even got suspended once in college for, for testing positive for a stimulant because he didn't, he wasn't aware of the therapeutic use exemption, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Essentially, these are medication stimulants, and this is why they get a bad rap that are performance enhancing drugs. They've been labeled as that because for individuals who don't have them, it's going to give them more energy and more focus and maybe take them above a standard deviation above the normal versus an individual with ADHD. It's just taking them back to the normal because they're below the standard deviation. So that's why it's considered a performance enhancing drug. So if you do have ADHD, you have to make sure to talk to your, whatever governing agency is, whether high school or NCAA or USADA or the World Olympic Doping Agency, WADA, and make sure you apply for a therapeutic use exemption so you can take the medication. Yeah. And for someone who has taken stimulant therapy for ADHD before, I can assure you it, it, it does not have the, the effect that one would, would, would think it has, man. It, um, and this is kind of funny. Uh, this is my experience. And I, I think, you know, my, my brothers and sisters out there with ADHD, you know, they, they, might, uh, they might be familiar with this. Any stimulant that I take, it has probably the opposite effect on me that it has like, you know, other people that don't have ADHD. So like, I remember even when I was a kid and I would drink coffee. It's calming. Like, you know, exactly. Like I would drink, you know, caffeine. I could drink caffeine as a child, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., right? And I could I could fall right to sleep, no problem at all when bedtime comes around. It just, caffeine it, it really just exactly, it almost helps kind of relax me. I remember, um, you know, I used to have a slight fear of, of flying, right? 
and I would drink coffee on the plane when they would come around with, you know, drink orders to calm myself down, to relax me on planes, you know, when I was a, when I was a teenager. So things like that, um, that, that was, you know, those are like kind of soft signs, I guess, you know, of, yeah. of having ADHD. But yeah, it, it, that's, that's the, mis, the misnomer, I think, in society. But I wanted to bring up one more example of an athlete, the other athletes, Chris Kamen. I don't know if you remember him. He was an all-star center for the Clippers back in the day. I, I do. don't know if a lot of people really enjoyed his, his game, his low post game. But uh, Terry Bradshaw has been open about his ADHD, Steelers quarterback legend. And then I wanted to talk about this UFC fighter, a big UFC fan, Kevin Lee, a welterweight fighter. He recently got suspended due to testing positive for amphetamines after his last fight in August August 28th when he lost to Daniel Rodriguez. Wow. Um, but he says, quote unquote, and I, there's a reason I want, want to talk, say this long-winded quote, because there's several issues I have with it that I want to break down because I think it would be educational. He says, in 2008, I was diagnosed with adult ADHD. It has always affected me. I did not discover real treatment for the diagnosis until 2020 when I was recovering from my double knee surgeries. I was prescribed Adderall from a doctor to improve my mental health. He, I told representatives from USADA, but he didn't apply for a therapeutic use exemption before hmm. his last fight. Wow. So he apologizes for that. Um, and then he goes on to say, it was never my intention to gain an athletic advantage. It was an attempt to conquer the severe anxiety I silently suffer from daily. I'm active, actively cooperating with the Nevada Athletic Commission. I expect to reach an agreement on the sanction, so on and so forth. So anyways, yeah, tell me like... You heard that. So there's a lot there. There's certain things that, yeah, there's a lot there to, to, to talk about. The first thing I see is like, this is an adult. adult. Um, he's been competing for quite some time. I think he's in his late 20s, early 30s. First thing that I think about is he didn't get diagnosed until 2018, but he, and he didn't find treatment until 2020. So what I see there is a lack of access to mental health care. And we know this is a huge issue in, mm -hmm. in um, all communities, but it, a lot more of an issue in the underserved population. That's why they're called the underserved population. A lot more of an issue in disadvantaged socioeconomic communities. There's a lot less access to mental health care. Um, yeah. A lot less access. To yeah. Access, access in, in, in the conventional sense for sure. But then another, another form of access uh, is, is the education and the awareness and the understanding. And I saw that, that, there were some issues there in, in terms of his understanding of kind of what he needed to do to protect himself, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so that he could compete in spite of having legitimate diagnoses and legitimate treatments. The therapeutic yeah. use exemption is one thing uh, he definitely should have applied for knowing that he takes stimulants. But yeah, if you listen to this podcast, you, you definitely know about the therapeutic use exemption. But I'm, I'm also imagining, imagining him making these statements in front of some sort of arbitrator, right? Where they may have medical professionals there, right? To serve as witnesses. And the fact that he's, he mentioned anxiety, right? As sort of the primary driver of, you know, whatever this deficit or disturbance is, as opposed to something that would be more of a, an ADHD executive functioning deficit. That's that's a that's a little bit of a problem. Now we we said we 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 do understand, so we, we don't want to confuse our listeners. We understand that anxiety can be a secondary consequence of having ADHD. 
right? ADHD and the symptoms of ADHD and the experiences you can have socially with ADHD can be a, a consequence, anxiety can be a consequence of that, right? And it, that, that may be what he's describing here. That may be what mm -hmm. he's talking about. But the problem is, if you're using stimulants, the only medical indication in which stimulants would be appropriate, at least, you know, for a professional athlete, right, would be ADHD. I mean, you know, narcolepsy and stuff like that. That that's also those are also indications for stimulant therapy, but we're we're not talking about narcolepsy here. We're talking about ADHD. And so if you're going to make a public statement uh in support of stimulant therapy uh and and therapeutic use exemption for stimulant therapy then you have to get it right and and you want to make sure you're using the right terms because this, this if you're if we're going to be if we're going to go medical then we have to also do it the right way and be legal about it right and uh and so you know his advisors should have been should have made sure that adhd was what he attested to as opposed to anxiety yeah so we talked about it before that um we have a lot of adult ADHD assessments and a lot of individuals come in with symptoms that look like on the surface ADHD, can't concentrate, can't focus, I'm very restless, I'm getting up, moving up and down, but it turns out they have an anxiety disorder. So we treat the anxiety disorder with therapy or SSRI medication and they get better and guess what, they can focus and concentrate and they're not restless anymore. The problem with go-aheading and, and seeing that picture and conceptualizing ADHD and treating with a stimulant and is if the individual doesn't have ADHD and they in fact have anxiety, you're going to make the anxiety a lot worse with that stimulant medication, or you can make it worse. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's, there's overlap, right? So there's about 25% of individuals with ADHD also have an anxiety disorder. And that's not to say that the stimulant medication is going to necessarily worsen the anxiety. It's got a risk of doing that, but a lot of cases a stimulant can be helpful for treating anxiety. If that individual's primary issue is with ADHD, but, we always, and Armin, you can attest to this as well. If there's separate ADHD plus some sort of general anxiety disorder, panic disorder, or social anxiety disorder, we're going to target that anxiety disorder first. Absolutely. Especially for adults. Either using an SSRI or some sort of anxiolytic or some sort of exposure therapy before we even consider stimulant medication. Yeah, exactly. And like we talked about earlier, those non-stimulant medical treatments, that's where those come into play. The the guanfacines, the clonidines, the strateras, um, you know, those medicines, those are kind of like the, our additional toolkits, our, our supplementals that, that can uh, help to still improve ADHD symptoms while also managing anxiety effectively. Absolutely. So yeah, that's, I, I think I like that quote just because it brought up some misconceptions and it's also, there's this stigma against ADHD diagnosis and treatment. I think that's one of the reasons why there's difficulty getting that diagnosis at times and difficulty getting that treatment because of the stigma against it. And there is stimulants are easy to abuse, right? So I just want like Japan hosted the Olympics most recently and there's stringent laws in Japan. There's a, they don't allow stimulants in their country. They're banned. So in order for someone to, to bring in their methylphenidate, they had to wow. um, apply for what's called a Yakan Shomei, or it's an import certificate that could allow them to bring in otherwise prohibited drugs. 
so they could bring in a certain amount of methylphenidate into the country. Um, so it's it's something where we've in the United States, it's a controlled substance. We, there's a database that tracks where you fill these medications, who prescribes them, um, that we check before we prescribe a stimulant or any controlled substance. So we know that this is per, individual is not doctor shopping. They're not getting stimulants down the street and then coming to us a few days later to get more stimulants. So these things, we, we keep a, a sound eye on them or a strong eye on them, but there's other countries that don't even allow them at all, even though we have copious amounts of evidence that they're helpful. Um, and we talked about before, untreated ADHD can lead to increase of risky behaviors, drug abuse, unwanted pregnancies, so on and so forth. So treating ADHD in the long run is actually beneficial. And it, it has, there's been no studies, no evidence to show that it has increased any substance use in the future, whether that's meth use or cocaine use or any other substance use. It actually, quite the contrary, treating someone with ADHD with stimulants at a young age shows that it actually prevents substance use disorders in the future. That's right. Yeah, because you know, I think what a lot of a lot of folks probably don't realize is that um, the stuff we get uh, in 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 pharmaceutical form, right, in the uh, the pill, these are highly regulated doses. Um, the stuff that that's designed in the lab, as opposed to stuff you get on the street, right, cocaine, meth, all that stuff. Like, you know, the the doses are impossible to really know. You know, the potency of what you're getting. You know, it's just you can't know that, right? It's not regulated. And, and so um, it's not a therapeutic experience unless it's regulated controlled doses that are, you know, done uh, and are sort of administered to the body in a gradual and consistent manner, the way we prescribe. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, very, very good results, right? Stimulant therapies yeah. have very, very yeah. good results. But I, I totally agree with you. I just want to make this one point: uh, the 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 importance of of regulating these things, and the importance of having physicians and you know, particularly psychiatrists, sort of at the at the helm of regulating the process. Because you know, combat sport in particular, one of the most important things is maintaining your weight, right, or trying to cut cut your weight, and medicines like stimulants would be performance enhancing in that way, right? Not, I mean, in terms of cognitive performance, um, you know, that may or may not necessarily help someone who doesn't really have ADHD. And we're talking about those that are abusing it, right? That, that don't actually have the, 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 the disorder. Where it could definitely make a difference in terms of competitive advantage is by, you know, causing the appetite suppression it could certainly make the idea of achieving a certain weight, right? If you're trying to get into a certain weight class, much easier. And from that standpoint, yeah. those little kind of things, those, those those things can make a big difference. So yeah, I, yeah. and this kind of to wrap up the ADHD portion is, I think what I visualize is having overall individuals out there, society at large, more understanding of what ADHD is, being able to recognize it and being able to reach out to a mental health professional to get appropriate treatment. And if that includes stimulants, that can be really beneficial, but that's not the only piece of the puzzle. It's the parents having a better understanding and how to relate to their child. It's the teacher having a better understanding how to how the, how this child learns best and being able to adapt to that. 
Um, it's the school system as a whole being able to allow the teacher to have the resources to do that because we know that they're they're strapped and also having um, the coach being able to have the resources and the education to know how the, the kid will best learn because structure is important for these individuals. So I think something like a sport, like Michael Phelps getting into that swimming regimen and swimming program was so beneficial for him. So a sport can be so beneficial for a kid with ADHD. 100%. And not only just individual sports, but also team, team sports. And if we're able to continue to turn down the volume on that stigma, decrease that stigma and educate and allow everyone in every profession, but specifically teachers and coaches and parents to, because to, being a parent is a full-time job, to have better understanding and better knowledge, then these individuals are going to thrive. They really are. And, um, you know, this is a final point for me, you know, ADHD and neurodiversity it's one of the, 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 the big inspirations for us for developing our mental fitness programs, you know, because we, we really, we understand the importance of routine building, you know, for those that you know, have kind of neurodivergent ways of learning, like we said, everyone does. Um, and so we, we really designed a program that really has something for everybody, right? Different styles of learning, right? We, we, we have a lot of visual aids because we understand that for some of us, you know, that's hugely important, you know, auditory aids, you know, those that, that are stronger learners when they hear things, you know, and, and we have, you know, for those that prefer to read and, you know, write down their thoughts, you know, we have journaling exercises, um, you know, for those that prefer the visualization, technique, we have mindfulness exercises, you know, we really try to um, kind of uh, stimulate all the senses in our program and understanding that a great mental fitness program is going to be one that respects and appreciates neurodiversity. Um, you know, finding a way to, to bring a group of people together, right, that think differently, um, and have different ways of seeing things, but bringing them together to accomplish one goal, right? Like that's what mental fitness is all about. And, and you have to appreciate neurodiversity to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, and we're all neurodiverse. And I love that you said that. One thing I did want to mention too, is like along those same lines, as you mentioned like finding out the best ways for an individual to learn, whether they prefer like visual aids or they prefer um, auditory is ideally anyone that comes into our office that's seeking an ADHD evaluation could get what's called neuropsych testing or a kid can get academic testing just to figure out, okay, let's look at their, um, how, how they best learn. Do they best learn through, are they better visual processes or are they better auditory processors? Do they learn better from looking at pictures and diagrams or do they learn better from listening to a lecture or listening to someone talk? These are things that we have at our disposal with regards to mental health professionals that we can, we can arrange for individuals to get to further kind of section out where the issues are because a lot of times we'll, we didn't mention this there'll be kids that come in that looks like adhd but it turns out no they actually just have a really hard of hearing they can't really hear what's going on so they're sitting in the back of a classroom it's not that they're not paying attention they can't hear so what do we do we find out they can't hear they get hearing implants or they get moved to the front of the classroom 
So simple things like that, same thing, we would find out a kid just, you know, he's not paying attention. Oh, he can't see the board. So let's get him some glasses or let's move him up front. There's little things that we can do with, with kids that are young ages to, that may look like ADHD, but it's actually some sort of a deficit elsewhere. Maybe it's a learning disorder. Maybe it's just the fact that they, they don't have good vision or hearing. So there's all these little things to tease out at the end of the day. And that's, those are all the things that factor into what Armin just said, the neurodiversity of us as humans and us needing to do a better job as a society as a whole to be more understanding, more empathetic, and to ultimately connect more to these individuals and help them out become the best that they, they can be, really. Quite frankly, that's what we all want for our, for our youth at the end of the day. That's right, man. Empathy is the key. Uh, and uh, understanding is the, the pathway. So let's get there, man. And uh, on that note, we did a full ADHD breakdown. I think uh, there's going to have to be a part two of this. I think we're going to have to do a part two, the neurodivergence, um, where we talk a little bit more about autism spectrum disorder. I think for most people, when they hear neuroatypical and neurodivergence, they think autism. And we didn't talk about it in detail today, but I think we'll have to do a part two of this where we talk more about autism spectrum disorder, because that's another mental health medical diagnosis that is very similar to ADHD. And then some people postulate that in the future, when we learn more about the brain, they're going to find out that ADHD and autism are kind of on the same spectrum. Once again, we're all on the same spectrum, right? Isn't that crazy? We definitely want to talk about more that more in detail, but I think Mm -hmm. we should give that its own episode. Yeah. And there's, and it's not the only one, right? Autism is not the only other neurodivergent condition. A couple others we could talk about too. Dyslexia? Tick disorder. We got Tourette's. There you go. And Tourette's as well. I mean, well. this is where we can get into the conversation where we can classify just about anything that we classify as a mental illness as part of neurodiversity. We just want to kind of stress that when it comes to mental illness, that's when there's distress or dysfunction. And there's certain individuals who have been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder that maybe they had some distress initially, but they don't have any distress or dysfunction now. Same with ADHD. So... I'm looking forward to, to expanding on this in a second part. Indeed. But I enjoyed this. Uh, 68, it was great. All right. Um, it was great. All right, Armin, let's end the stigma. Let's continue the conversation. 